hppodcraft.com. Quelle journée admirable J'ai passé toute la matinée étendue sur l'herbe devant ma maison, sous l'énorme platane qui la couvre, l'abrite et l'ombrage tout entière. J'aime ce pays. What a lovely day I've spent all the morning lying on the grass in front of my house, under the enormous plantain tree which covers and shades and shelters the whole of it. I like this part of the country. I am fond of living here because I am attached to it by deep roots, the profound and delicate roots which attach a man to the soil on which his ancestors were born and died, to their traditions, their usages, their food, the local expressions, the peculiar language of the peasants, the smell of the soil, the hamlets, and to the atmosphere itself. That was the opening of The Horla, a short story slash novelette kind of thing by Guy de Maupassant, or Guy de Maupassant, if you're French. Oui. I am Chad Pfeiffer. <laughs> I am Chris Lagui. <laughs> and this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Go ahead and ask the standard, why are we talking about Guy de Maupassant on a Lovecraft podcast? Because HP Lovecraft in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, mentioned this story as one of his uh, particular favorite ones. In fact, this story inspired him to write The Call of Cthulhu. Something about this creature and the Horla influencing people in their sleep and that sort of thing really appealed to him. And also there's a notion in here that we'll talk about later in the story that's very Lovecrafty. Now, how do we pull off that Frenchy stuff in the beginning there? The Frenchy stuff was from our reader, uh, Erwan G. Marshall, who's a, a friend of mine, a film director who is French-American. And so I thought it'd be nice to hear a little of the story in his native language before we faded it up into the English oui. that I can understand. And it's interesting because I bought on my Kindle an edition of The Horla to read. Mm-hmm. It was. It had a forward and that kind of thing about the writer, and then I also found it for free online and pasted it into this document that we have that we're doing notes on. Yeah, and those two translations were different. Oh, wow. so what I read in my own time when I came in to do notes, I thought, oh, that's not exactly how I remembered it. It's strange when you think about it because translating there are often words that aren't direct translations, so it's going to be up to the translator to kind of artistically figure out what it should be or what's closest to the art artist's idea. Exactly. Well, even the title of the story, the Horla, that's a made-up word. Yeah, that's a made-up word, but in, in French, or or or, like, uh, like an hors d'oeuvre, it means mm -hmm. outside. And then la, or lia, I can't, I don't do French, means mm -hmm. there. So that one means, you know, the outsider or the, the other or the one out there. So interesting that, well, they decided to keep that, but you could even translate the title of this in different ways. And it might be more clear. Now, before we jump into the story, actually, you know what? I just want to get a plug out here real quick about yeah. our graphic novel Deadbeats. We always mention it on the show. Yeah. But I, I just really want to appeal to people. Please go check it out. Bookdepository.com. If you haven't, if you've thought about it, but you haven't picked it up yet, go pick it up. It's really cool. I'm really proud of it. Me too. I'd like more people to buy it. Because <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, I want to do some more, but we, you know, we got to sell some. So yep. if you're thinking about it, if you got a friend you think would enjoy it bookdepository.com. There's free shipping worldwide. You can pick it up. That's right. You will enjoy it. Now, before we get into the story, let's talk a little bit about Guy de Maupassant. He's a really interesting person. His full name is Henri-René Albert Guy, uh, Guy de Maupassant, uh, which is huge. I can see why he shortened it. That's a lot of names. He's born in 1850. Um, from what I read, he had a prosperous family, but it was, it was kind of scandalous. His mom split from his dad. Whoa. Tried to get a legal separation, which was risky at the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he moved out with her. But you, you can see that could give somebody a good independent kind of nature, you know, growing up. Right. She loved classical literature and he was into that too. And then he had this relationship when he went into high school, he met Gustave Flaubert, an influence 
on his writing and, and kind of guide his career later, which mm-hmm. was cool. Now, after he got out of college, he enlisted in the French army. Franco-Prussian War was going on. That, that was a, obviously an enormous influence on his fiction later, how people acted during the occupation and the war. After the war, he spent 10 years in Paris. He was working as a clerk in the Navy Department, and that's when he started writing fiction with Flaubert's help. And his first short story, Boule de Suif, uh, was published in 1880. And that's one of those right out of the gate successes. He wasn't a, a writer who necessarily toiled in obscurity for a long time. Right. That was his first published short story and people loved it and it's still considered his best. Is that the one about the prostitute? Yeah. We were talking about him uh, a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't remember the story that I read in college, but that was it. Right. It's a great story, but it just makes you so angry. Right. Bouldersweef means ball of fat or ball of tallow. And it's a nickname for this prostitute who is in a carriage with a bunch of other folks who are all leaving town because of the war. They want to go somewhere that isn't occupied by the Prussians, even though the people in the carriage, they're kind of representative of all of French society. There's a couple of nuns. There's, uh, I can't remember exactly. There's some wealthy people in there. Mm-hmm. But they're all, they all sort of look down their nose at her. The carriage ride is taking forever. It's hard because of the weather and there's problems going on on the road. It's, it's taking forever for them to travel. And everybody's starving. And she says, you know what? I've got a bunch of food that I brought for the trip there and back again. And she shares it with everybody. Oh. Which is nice of her. Even of course it is. Yeah. They're being jerks. They accidentally wander into this town that's occupied by the Prussians. They get stopped at this inn. And there's an officer there who's like, he won't let them leave. And pretty soon they realize that the reason, what he wants before he'll let them leave is to sleep with Boule de Suif. She doesn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, they just assume that because she's a prostitute, she'll be cool with it. But A, I mean, just because she's a prostitute doesn't mean she's going to be cool with it. And and B, this guy is the occupying force and she's a patriot, even though she's yeah. the lowest form of, you know, <laughs> society to them. And so they launch into this whole section. I know I'm going on and on about a story that we're not covering, but they go into this whole section where they're doing so much to convince her to do it, just really getting into her head. So she finally does it and they all get let go. And then on the carriage ride back, they don't share their food with her. Oh. They won't even talk to her. Ah, oh. and they're like kind of like she's disgusting because of what she did, even though it's what set them free. Yeah, it saved everybody's butt. So that's how this guy came out <laughs> swinging. <laughs> wow. We cover the weird tale here, so we're not going to be covering a lot of his other fiction that no. isn't related to that sort of thing. But I would no. highly recommend that people check out this one. I've I've heard that he had syphilis when he wrote this story, and that maybe he was suffering from mental illness when he did. Is this? What have you what have you read about that? That certainly makes it a sexier story, but I, I don't think he was quite crazy, you know, mm-hmm. when he wrote this. He did have syphilis, I don't know when he got it, but earlier in his life and it supposedly affected his mental state. And he did try to commit suicide. Yeah, by cutting his own throat, which seems like a crazy way to try and kill yourself. It's pretty deliberate. Yeah. I mean you you, you definitely have the will to do it. He he was unsuccessful and then he was committed to an asylum. That was in eighteen ninety two. And he died in the same asylum like a year and a half later. Wow. Now, when he wrote this story, I think it was about five years before that suicide attempt. The symptoms of what were going on with him were starting to manifest, I think, probably when he yeah. wrote this. I know that for, he had a lifelong aversion to society. He, he was somewhat agoraphobic and had all sorts. Well, you know, it's hard to know exactly from accounts at the time, but it seems like he's suffering from all sorts of different mental illnesses. Right. This story seems like when I was reading it, it seemed like somebody that had some firsthand experience with mental illness. Absolutely. I think before we started recording, you said it reminded you a lot of the yellow wallpaper. It did. Yeah. And I think it's that kind of thing where the writer is really nailing a certain kind of malady. The epitaph that Maupassant wrote for himself (laughs) was, I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. 
Oh my god. And that <laughs> it's so sad because I can I understand what he's saying. Yeah. You know, he was he, he was jealous and he wanted more his whole life and then anything he had he couldn't be happy with. Yeah. And I think that that's such a cruel irony for having here. Here we had a writer who was successful in his own lifetime. Yeah. And yet just didn't have that mental ability to be happy about it. I think that happens to a lot of people, especially actors and famous people and why they always mm-hmm. end up being drug addicts. And, yeah. you know, they think, hey, once I become famous or once I do this and I, I'm doing what I love, I'll be happy. And then they get there and they realize, wait, I'm still me. I know. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in the story we're about to talk about where because he feels like he's being, the character feels like he's being beset in his own home, he'll just pick up and go somewhere else and then think, oh, I'm fine now. And then yeah. go home and then be confronted with the same problem. I don't even think it's it's limited to people of incredible success, like you know famous people. A lot of folks will say, once I get out of college, once I get this degree, once I have the child, once yeah. I have this marriage, once I know this person. Exactly. Then it'll all be as if everything is, you know, suddenly all the struggle will stop and you'll start living that chapter of your life where you're happy with everything. <laughs> I don't know. There's the the people who study happiness and that sort of thing who think you just kind of have a level set. And even if you're rich and successful, you're going to get back to that kind of level. There was a study that was done about happiness. Did you remember this where they looked at happiness of amputees and non-amputees in general? Right. People that lost their arms in an accident and at first, when you lose your arm or leg or whatever limb it was, you get really depressed, but then you would get really happy again afterwards. Like you'd somehow start to overcome your your disability and you would feel mm-hmm. elated, but then you would eventually go back to, to the exact same state that you were previously. Right. Like all those people. So it's just maybe losing your arm could make you happier <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> it's strange, than, isn't it? The not the not losing your arm, exactly. Yeah. It's happiness and, and contentment are very strange things and that people have been philosophizing about it for yeah. a long time. <laughs> they sure have. Uh, yeah. And it's um and you know, there's certain things like money obviously will make you happier, but only till a point after that it's it doesn't matter. You know, there's the difference between somebody with a million dollars and a billion dollars is it has almost no impact on them. All right. Yeah. You know, but but obviously, if you're poor, that's a circumstance that makes life much more difficult. Oh, and it geez. does affect your. You know. Sure does. Yeah. 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 Well, in that opening that we heard or want to read, we were catching the narrator in a very happy state. So that's the way this whole thing is told in journal entries. This entry, you know, he loves where he lives. He's out in his country that he feels attached to and he's laying in the grass and everything's awesome. Kind of gives you an idea of the kind of guy we're dealing with when the very next journal entry says the following. May 12. I've had a slight feverish attack for the last few days and I feel ill. Or rather, I feel low spirited. Whence come those mysterious influences which change our happiness into discouragement and our self-confidence into diffidence? One might almost say that the air, the invisible air, is full of unknowable forces whose mysterious presence we have to endure. I wake up in the best of spirits with an inclination to sing in my heart. Why? I go down by the side of the water and suddenly after walking a short distance I return home wretched as if some misfortune were awaiting me there. Why? That just sounds like mental illness to me, man. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I can certainly relate. The thing is, he takes what it is inexplicable. Why do you suddenly become upset? You know, you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. You are perfectly content, and then suddenly everything feels wrong. Right. And, you know, sometimes it does. Something happened, and then you can't remember what it was that happened. Or there's something that triggers. You see 
a reflection of something that reminds you of something that happened to you that reminds you of something that you're not happy about that you've managed to forget about and that triggers a whole series of things and then you're back in your your sad place sure yeah or sometimes you know maybe like it happens in speaking of the actor thing or like being in los angeles you're surrounded by people who are are somewhat successful that you know yeah (laughs) so sometimes it's like i'll see a commercial and it reminds you like oh this guy is doing well yeah, and you, you're happy for him, but then somewhere it gets into your head that you suck, and then you didn't even know you had that thought, and then an hour later you're like, "Man, I'm mad. Why am I? Why am I mad?" Yeah, there was this Onion article that I saw this week that was killing me. It said, "Child who just lost balloon begins lifelong battle with depression." <laughs> <laughs> like that, that was the inciting incident. The first time he went, "Oh, oh no, things aren't." gonna go my way (laughs) yeah the central idea of the book that's forming here is that without our meaning to our mood changes as if there are invisible forces praying right and that's that's the weird element of this is that there's a presence or intelligence that might have some kind of bearing on our moods and our feelings exactly and he goes on to kind of even say there's so many forces at work in the world if we only had other organs which we could use to uh, perceive them but the just our ears and our sense of smell and our eyes, it's all, it's not enough. Yeah. We know that it's incredibly limited. You know, our sense of taste, we can scarcely distinguish the age of a wine. Yeah. There's all sorts of things we can't hear. And that notion, you know, it seems to come up again and again and again in the stuff that we cover and in, in these weird tales. Yeah. Well, there, there are. There's lots of things out there that we can't perceive. I mean, even mm-hmm. something as simple as like the ultraviolet spectrum, there's birds that can see that stuff and certain insects that can see. Yeah stuff that we can't we just it's imperceivable to us which is kind of blows my mind and then you think about animals like dogs being able to smell things that we can't smell and distinguish that and if you look at our ability to perceive Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty limited even compared to other creatures out in our world yeah yeah well that's like you know i can't see color or gender when I look at people, I just see them for the beautiful people they are. But I didn't. That I, makes you know. it really hard. I know dealing with you because you are colorblind. You say, friend of yours, Chris, he came over and wanted to talk yeah. to you. I'm like, well, which friend was it? He goes, oh, he was just a, uh, I think he was a guy. I'm not I sure. I think it was a guy. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, what color was his hair? I don't see color. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Chris, it was just beautiful. Okay. He's a beautiful human being. Next entry, it's, uh, he says, I am ill decidedly. I was so well last month. And I like I love that notion, like, ah, everything was great. Everything was going so great, <laughs> which is how I felt. You know, I, we. it's funny you're saying you wanted to put a on uh, the last show, you wanted to put some kind of announcement, but I had broken my computer the night before we recorded, like yeah. just a few hours before, really, my brand new computer. I was so down in the mouth when we recorded that show last week. So depressed, man. <laughs> and like justifiably, man, something like that happened. I mean, you I'm going to share this with people. You spilled a drink mm. on your brand new laptop. Exactly. Like, that is horrific. It's terrible when it's the main... I mean, most people, they depend on their computers for so much. But it's how we do this show. It's how we do everything. Yeah. And, and and the thing was that I had... We've been doing this show since 2009. And the bulk of that time, I've used my old rickety PC. And, and I didn't buy something new because I couldn't afford it. So I waited until I could actually... You know, I saved. And I was like, I'm going to get this really nice computer. So it's like I, I denied it to myself for so long that when I got it, I was like, this is awesome. And then I ruined it. <laughs> and it's just like that balloon thing, you know, in my head. I was like, you can't have nice things. Look at you. And I'm probably I broke a glass when I was, you know, two. 
and right. I'm still uh, <laughs> still stewing over it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look what you did, you idiot. <laughs> Chad, you're not an idiot, man. It was an accident. Those things happen. It's horrible, but you know. In that in that Onion article, right away when he loses the balloon, his dad goes, "Well, you should hold on to it, buddy." And he's like, "It just reaffirmed that it was his fault, <laughs> and that everything that goes wrong will be his fault for the rest of his life." Well, our main character goes to see a doctor, and it's a total hypochondriac visit, right? Like his symptoms mm-hmm. are funny. You know, my pulse was high, my eyes dilated, my nerves highly strung. <laughs> That's that's a great doctor in right there. Yeah. Your nerves seem to be highly strung right mm. now. Let me feel this. Yo, woo. Heavy action on that nerve. Yeah, I can feel it. Feel how tight that is. Oh, that is a, <laughs> that's a tight nerve there. In the version that we got from online, it said, I must have a course of shower baths and a bromide of potassium. But in the text I got on my Kindle, it said, I am to take douches and drink bromide of potassium. Whoa, big difference. Big difference. Well, I mean. Big difference. <laughs> yes. To, to an English speaker in uh, this era right now, huge yes. difference. Huge difference. <laughs> so do, I, I guess I thought he was just kind of a hypochondriac at this part of the story. This is a weird tale. So there is an element of supernatural. But to me, the whole time I'm reading this, I just felt like he was suffering from mental illness. Like he's crazy. Yeah. And all of these things that are happening that seem like supernatural are really just him putting it on there. So when he goes to the doctor and he says he's feeling bad, he's feeling bad because he's suffering from this manic depressive uh, disorder that he seems to have. And that's why he's feeling bad. But of course, they don't diagnose those things in the 1800s. So, of course. I mean, everything seems to be playing into that idea that I got very early on in the story. It's anxiety. Yeah. For the most part, I think. Especially later when he's saying, I want to get out of this chair, but I can't get out of this chair. It's this like intense fear. He doesn't know why he's feeling the fear, so he finds a way to do it. There's an entry where he says, um, you know, you really got to be around people because if you're not around people, you'll start peopling the world with invisible people. Yeah. Like, he's aware of what he does exactly in the story yeah. at one point. But he seems to forget. He does, well, he, he does forget that. Now, it's nighttime and going to bed that he's really afraid of. He locks this door. Yeah. Uh, because, and he goes, why am, why am I locking my door? Why am I doing this? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm being crazy. And he is. He is. I mean, he's being paranoid for some reason and he can't put his finger on why he's doing it and when he sleeps it's not a uh he doesn't gently you know glide in to sleep he just suddenly he's out he says i I fall asleep as a man throws himself into a pool of stagnant water in order to drown so it's this actually terrifying experience going to sleep when he does go to sleep it's it gets a lot worse i sleep a long time two or three hours perhaps then a dream no a nightmare lays hold on me I feel that I am in bed and asleep. I feel it, and I know it. And I feel also that somebody is coming close to me, is looking at me, touching me, is getting onto my bed, is kneeling on my chest, is taking my neck between his hands and squeezing it, squeezing it with all his might in order to strangle me. I struggle, bound by that terrible powerlessness which paralyzes us in our dreams. I try to cry out, but I cannot. I want to move, I cannot. I try with the most violent efforts and out of breath to turn over and throw off this being which is crushing and suffocating me. I cannot. Oh, God. Well, that's that's a night terror that he's having there. Sleep paralysis. Right. So worst feeling. I've never actually experienced, but I, you've had those before, haven't you? Yeah. Well, you haven't had sleep paralysis before? No. Were you uh, kind of awake you can't move your limbs or anything like that no it's never happened oh god it's horrible you know i was listening i think it was radio lab that we were talking about that and how or why it works is that your your brain when you when you're sleeping shuts down mm-hmm. your 
the control of your body. So in your dreams, when you're running around jumping and you know slapping people in the face, whatever it is you do in your <laughs> dreams, your body's not doing those things because it it shuts off the connection to your actual physical body. Yeah. But what happens is sometimes you'll start to wake up and that connection still shut down. Yeah. So you're kind of half awake and half dreaming and you try to move your body but you can't because that isn't working and you feel this crazy panic because you can't move your body and usually it goes away fairly quickly right or you end up going back to sleep it depends surely on you've on had person. that dream where you know you're being attacked or something's happening and you're trying to fight and you're too weak or you can't move i've had those but that's a different thing that's like in my dream i'm completely asleep well so i mean that's kind of how it feels though that's happening and then you you start realizing it's a dream and then you wake up and then you're struggling and you still can't move and sometimes it does go away right away and then sometimes you're just kind of like in a state of terror it's kind of like that <laughs> nightmare on elm street thing where they're in the dream and they wake up but then they're still in the dream right. you're not yeah, sure yeah. what's going on so it's really confusing too and boy it sounds like just this guy's got it so bad he's going for walks and that kind of thing just to try and get himself tired and and even though he is tired he says that and that, that there's just so many little lines in here that really ring true to me he says, mm. i go to walk i go for walks to try and tire myself out even though i'm exhausted yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know what that's that's like. You're just you're so tired that you can't sleep. Yeah. I've been there, man. That's yeah, that's it's, one of those things. And you try feeling. to do. Yeah, you try to do things to just kind of you go, well, I'm awake now. So I'm going to try and make the most of it. And maybe this will be the thing that pushes me over the edge and I could finally get some sleep. He has this interesting, interesting incident when he goes out for one of those walks where suddenly he feels like he's being followed. Yeah, it's it's cool in the story how how this Anxiety slowly takes on a character. It takes some time, yeah. but at first he's just being followed. Somebody's walking at his heels near enough to touch him, but he can't see them. And at, at some point he gets so upset he sits down and then he can't even remember how he came in to this, to the woods. He's like lost for a minute. It's again, this, the writing in here is really good. I mean, for me, I wasn't enjoying it so much because I felt bad for him if that makes sense that makes sense yeah it's good writing it's not a cool ordeal you know it's not like you're, yeah exactly. what's gonna happen you know you're just like uh things aren't gonna go well no it's just like oh poor guy this is terrible and, I, and at this point i'm really hoping that some supernatural thing is going to manifest some actual thing mm -hmm. and it's not just you know him being crazy like we talked about before he leaves to try and get a little clarity he goes to mont michel which is a town he hasn't seen before and has all kinds of great medieval architecture and churches and and that sort of thing. And he, yeah. he, he finds this gothic church. He talks to a monk who lives in the building. Yes. But he might be referring to just maybe the whole area. But he's, he says, how happy you, you know, you must be up here. This is amazing view. And the monk says, well, it's very windy. And then he goes in and he starts. <laughs> it's one of those people in on the trips that he takes. Do not help this guy out. This monk then tells him this crazy story about how people can hear a goat. A goat bleeding or people screaming uh, down by the beach. And he said some fishermen swear they saw an old shepherd with mm -hmm. a cloak that covered his head. So you couldn't really see his face. And <laughs> he he's walking along the beach, guiding a he goat with a man's face and a she goat with a woman's face. And both of them have white hair <laughs> who talk incessantly fighting. They're arguing in a strange language. And then suddenly they stop and they just start screaming. Wait, what the heck? That is the craziest thing ever, man. <laughs> it's not, I mean, it's like most people, they just go, I hear goats in the night from down there and some kind of talking. <laughs> right. But then the story of what is discovered is much crazier than just I hear goats, you know? <laughs> Why are there the, these goats with people's faces? It's pretty, I don't know. It was making me giggle when I read it and then I thought, that's really weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that pulls me back to that. Remember that invasion of the body snatchers, the 1970s version of the dog. Oh, right. The dog, dog with, with the, the human face. 
Totally. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, oh. Our poor protagonist says to the monk, the monk says, you believe that, do you? And he uh, goes, well, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but <laughs> if there are things besides ourselves on the earth, how come we are, we've been here so long. Why has nobody else really seen a goat with a human face? Or why haven't we seen, you know, monsters or creatures or blah, blah, blah? You know, we would have seen it if yeah. they were real. Kind of like people will say, yeah, if the Bible's real, then why aren't any of those miracles still happening? You know, it's just kind of a reasonable question to ask. But then the monk says, do we see the hundred thousandth part of what exists? Look here. There is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature. It knocks down men and blows down buildings, uproots trees, raises the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs and casts great ships onto the breakers. It kills, it whistles, it sighs, it roars. But have you ever seen it? And can you see it? Yet it exists for all that. Perfect thing to say to a crazy hypochondriac. <laughs> right. It's, you know, and the guy, he kind of yeah, chills yeah. when after he hears it, but he he writes what he had said had often been in my own thoughts. So this guy just confirmed something for him. Not the greatest argument in the world. either. I mean, obviously, there are things that we can't perceive, but they do have an effect on our world or us. Like he says, the wind, we can't see the wind, but we definitely feel the wind. And not only do I feel it, but you feel it and we feel it at the same time and we can measure it and it's quantifiable. But these ideas that this guy has, this is what the, the monk should have told him. He goes, well, some things we can't see and are there, but there's a lot of things that are just there in our mind. So you should go <laughs> home and, you know, relax. Don't worry about it. It's all in your head. I wanted the protagonist to go, man, I'm not talking about the wind. I'm talking about a go with a human face. <laughs> I would perceive that. If, that. if there was a goat with Tom Selleck's face walking around, I would see it. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about the wind for. <laughs> People would remark on that. It would be in the literature. That is something you go home and write about, even if you don't write. <laughs> you tell somebody. Absolutely. Talking about the wind. Thanks a lot, Monk, for nothing. When he gets back home. He's feeling better after this trip. Yeah, but his coachman is having some problems. Right. His henchman, uh, Jean, is is not feeling well and is kind of seemingly feeling the same thing that he's been feeling. Which, at this point, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe maybe something's going on here. Yeah, because it lines up. Because he left, and then the coachman started feeling bad. So it's like whatever was bugging him moved on for a while. Right. So now now we're getting into the realm of this is a, a measurable, quantifiable thing. This isn't just mm -hmm. in its head if it's starting to affect another guy. Right. I mean, you can choose to read this as if something supernatural happens. There's an arc to the story. It's probably not. This is the definition of the unreliable narrator. Can't really know no, if he's just crazy or what's going on. Now, after he writes that about his coachman the next day on the 4th of July, his nightmares come back. So the trip, it was nice, but it didn't cure him. And in this, this time, it's more specific the way he describes the kind of sleep paralysis or nightmare. Where he says somebody was leaning on him, sucking his life from between his lips with his mouth. Yeah. And then it got up, satiated, and he was just broken. So it's a completely vampiric experience. Right, which is different than it was before because he had a guy sitting on his chest str strangling him. Right. But now it's like some kind of weird vampire. Well, he says the mouth at one point, but then he says it's on his neck at another point. 
Yeah. Which, again, makes me feel like it's a dream. You know, it's like first it's sucking out of my mouth, but then it's biting on my neck. And this, you know, he says later when he's doing his research and stuff like that, that he's not coming up with phenomena that really match what he's going through. But this notion of somebody stealing your life while you sleep is pretty common. And it seems like there's lots of precedent for it. You know, the idea that cats steal your breath while you're sleeping. Right. Or um, well, even vampires. I mean, the old vampire myths where they come in when you, you were sleeping and they would take your, your essence from you. They wouldn't necessarily, they'd say take your blood, but it was more your life force. Right. A really strange thing happens at this point. Uh, well, the next day on the fifth, mm-hmm. he writes about how he goes to drink some water. Like he, he locks his door in his room and he had a pitcher of water and a glass full of water mm-hmm. and he goes to drink this glass and it's empty. And he's like, I didn't, I didn't drink this water. Yeah. It wasn't me. I totally remember. I would remember if I drank this water. I had it full, ready to drink when I got up, and now it's gone. Maybe I drank it in my sleep. Yeah, he, he goes through the whole thing. Maybe I'm a, a sleepwalker, and I got up, and I drank this, and I don't remember it. It's a whole... There were a couple of pieces of writing here that were so great. Uh, it, basically, in all the translations that I looked at, this one thing... Because he he notices that the water bottle is full, and, and he's the glass has got water in it, and he puts it down, and then he goes to bed, and he has that kind of thing where he just falls into sleep. And then when he wakes up, he's got this terror. And it says, picture to yourself a sleeping man who is being murdered, who wakes up with a knife in his chest, a gurgling in his throat, is covered with blood, can no longer breathe, is going to die, and does not understand anything at all about it. There you have it. Hmm. That was the best way he could describe this feeling. And it, it got me. I thought, oh, my yeah. God. That's terrible. And that's before he discovers that the water's drunk. And then when he does... Man, he just goes nuts. And and then he starts thinking about, is it that, not that just that I'm a somnambulist, but that I'm possessed? Like, do we have some kind of alien, invisible being who, when we're asleep, get into our body and they can make it do whatever they want? In fact, are the bodies more willing to serve them than even us? Yeah. Which is a pretty huge leap to make. This is crazy talk now. For me, I, I mean, again, I, at the very beginning of the story, when all these things started happening, I that's... The glass. I have the mental illness glasses on when I'm reading mm-hmm. the story because that's just it's just how I'm seeing everything. So I'm looking through that filter. I'm hoping that it's going to get obviously supernatural at some point. But this stuff still makes me feel, and especially these things, these leaps he's making are kind of crazy person leaps. They are, and he realizes it later when he goes to uh, I think Paris. It's the same journal entry that he said we people space with phantoms or with other people if we're not in society. He also says something right. like. It's so silly when we run into something we can't understand. Instead of saying, well, I don't get that because I don't know the cause, we immediately go, no, that's a supernatural event. Yeah. And he finds it amusing when he's out of his house. Yeah. and he Because this is what basically all that's happened is that his water isn't there. He drank it or somebody else did or something like that. Or he doesn't know why it's gone. But now he's decided that an alien inhabits his body at night. <laughs> And his body likes the alien more, you know? <laughs> it's like a huge leap to take. Yeah. <laughs> Once this has happened to him, he decides he's going to start experimenting with different types of food and drink and kind of try to get a handle on what's going on here, or at least whatever this invisible monster likes yeah. as a treat the best. Yeah. Well, um, we should, we should, let's hold off on that until next week. Yeah. He's going to start that experimenting and freaks him out. And then he goes to Paris, like we've been talking about. And I think next episode, we could probably get through the second half of the story. Yeah. So. In that case, we haven't really... Uh, the, the next month, we're going to do some Ambrose beers, but we will have an open spot. And I thought since... um I felt kind of bad that I hated that E.F. Benson story and 
people seem to really like him. So I think maybe we'll throw another EF Benson story on the schedule. Yeah. If we could find one that's really good and short. Um, so if anybody has suggestions in that regard. there was a, We've got a couple, but I'd like a few more suggestions. So if you could, and comments are on the forums, let us know what EF Benson story you think is awesome. Yeah. And we'll cover it. Uh, once again, just wanted to mention that Deadbeats is for sale. And yeah. you can get that at bookdepository.com. I want to thank Erwan G. Marshall for being our reader. He's going to do some more of this for us. Thank you so much. I love your French. Uh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Mm-hmm.